Thank you, Madam Clerk, and thank you to the parties for working with us on getting some more time to get that taken care of. Uh, again, just to reintroduce the panel, I'm Judge Hunter Murphy. To my right, Judge John Arrowood. To my left, Judge Toby Hampson. We are here for 23-760, uh, State of North Carolina Utilities Commission versus Environmental Working Group and others. And we will be with the appellant. And uh, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Matthew Quinn. I'm a lawyer at Lewis and Roberts uh, here in Raleigh. And uh, um, I'm going to be speaking this morning on behalf of the appellants. I'm here with my co-counsel, uh, Caroline Leary, and uh, Kathy Crawley-Jones, and Andrea Bonvecchio are uh, we're also counsel of record in this docket. But I'm going to be giving the argument on behalf of all appellants this morning. Um, we are here this morning because a terrible injury has been inflicted upon the rooftop solar industry in our state. And what this court must decide is whether that injury can be undone, where the North Carolina Utilities Commission approved the net energy metering rate at issue without a meaningful investigation of the costs and benefits of rooftop solar. Now, I intend to talk about three issues this morning concerning why the Utilities Commission um, should be reversed. The first issue is the following. Under the applicable statute that we're going to talk about a lot this morning, I'm sure, this is 62-126.4. Under that statute, it was necessary for the Utilities Commission to conduct an investigation of the costs and benefits of customer-sided generation and that investigation was not conducted. Number two, it was necessary for the Utilities Commission to make findings of fact and reach conclusions of law concerning which costs and concerning which benefits must be part of the cost-benefit analysis. The Commission failed to do that as well. And finally, the statute at issue, again, this is 62-126.4, that statute required a net energy metering rate for, quote, all tariff designs, end quote. Despite that mandate, an entire class, a major class, of net energy metering customers was eliminated by the Commission. These are three errors of law that we believe and we contend justify reversal of the Commission. Now, I'd like to start out briefly, if it pleases the Court, um, going through just a little bit of background about net energy metering, because I suspect there are not a ton of net energy metering cases that reach the court. I could be wrong. But um, just by way of background, uh, net energy metering is going to involve what's called customer-sided generation, which is just a fancy way of saying it's a customer that, for instance, has a rooftop solar system on their roof and generates their own power. And what will happen is there is a net energy metering um, billing arrangement between that customer and the utility. And whenever the customer generates more electricity than what they consume on site, the excess is put on the grid and 
there's some sort of, there's more nuance to it than this, but there's some sort of billing credit that'll be applied for that excess generation put out over the grid. And that billing arrangement's called net energy metering. And the way we got here is in 2017, House Bill 539 was passed in 2017. And as part of that House bill, um, the statute at issue, 62-126.4, was created. And that statute, it's, it's not long. It was cited, I think, in full in almost everybody's briefs. It's an important statute. Um, but it, it, I'll summarize it as, as basically requiring the following. It requires that the utilities in our state file revised net metering rates. And the statute expressly requires that those rates be non-discriminatory. And the statute also expressly requires that the rates be established, quote, only after an investigation of the costs and benefits of customer-sided generation. And then thirdly, the statute required that the commission shall establish net metering rates, quote, under all tariff designs that ensure that the net metering retail customer pays its full fixed cost of service. Can I just start real quick there with the all um, tariff designs? Because, yeah, I, I think I, I would agree in part that all usually means all, but then in your um, reply brief, you, you seem to recognize that all doesn't necessarily mean all different rate schedules. Um, so talk to me about how all can mean all, or all has to mean all, except when it doesn't. And if, since it doesn't, but you still have to do all that you already had. Yeah, this is an excellent question. And really, I think it's the crux of this part of the argument. Um, so first of all, I don't think anybody is going to contend that when we say all tariff designs, we're, we should be referring to tariff designs that never previously benefited from net energy metering, right? But what happened here is there was an elimination of an entire and prominent class of customers that have always, I say always, as long as net energy metering has been, been around, that have always benefited from net energy metering, right? So I don't think anybody's going to contend that a light pole needs to have its own net energy metering tariff design. I don't think that's what the statute of the General Assembly would have contemplated. But what we do think the statute requires is that if you are a, a customer class that has always benefited from net energy metering, then you are entitled under the, under the statutory language to a revised net energy metering tariff design. So that, that's point number one. But let, let me ask you, that, that's where I think I, I get lost a little bit with this, is, is there anywhere else in the statutes where the General Assembly was saying these are the tariff designs you have to have. Does that exist? I, I think to answer your question directly, no, not exactly. But to give a clarification to that, there's a triggering provision in this statute, a triggering provision which speaks to which tariff designs need to have net energy metering. And that triggering provision is found in subsection A, okay? And it's, it's, it's Im embodied within the word revised in subsection A. So what 62-126.4 subsection A says is, 
each electric public utility shall file for commission approval revised net metering rates for electric customers and then there's some some clarifications that I don't think are pertinent right now um, so what we would contend is that this word revision is an important word flat rate customers are the class that was eliminated by the Commission okay and they were a major class of net energy metering customers they had a net energy metering tariff that needed to be under subsection a revised okay but why would why should we interpret this part of, of one statute to be saying the legislature legislature meant to set in stone the availability of these type of tariff rates for all time going forward when they don't ever do that otherwise okay. I, I think that's a I think that's a good question and um, your honor I think what I want to concentrate on in answering that is the prominence of that customer class okay so previously there was the, the difference between the flat rate and the time of use that's now mandatory is previously the flat rate class you charge the same rate of electricity no matter what time of day you purchase it and what the Utilities Commission required is that every um, customer now they can't play the same rate no matter what time they purchase the electricity but they got to pay a different rate depending on what time of day that you purchase electricity okay and um, it may be that there is flexibility that the Commission should perhaps consider on remand to figure out which tariff designs are necessary now and then in the future and the Commission could have flexibility to deliberate over that in the future but the Commission never considered that below right I mean we have a major class of customers the flat rate customers that, om that almost all net energy metering customers were operating under before that was eliminated and it was eliminated notwithstanding the mandate that we have revised net metering rates well, there was no revision of that tariff it was just completely eliminated that's number one and then number two that there be a net energy meeting rate under all tariff designs so the combination of those two statutory provisions would require that this particular rate for flat rate customers be retained now in the future it may be that that the Commission can conduct some sort of deliberation and and maybe and we don't have to always keep the same things all the time forevermore but at this at that moment when we had the, the most major class of, of net energy metering customers that was completely eliminated we would contend that doesn't comply with this statute including the words revised in subsection a and the mandate of all tariff designs under subsection B so as I'm, as I'm hearing your argument on this piece that the the key component here seems to be that what we're talking about is re revision of already established um, net metering rates rather than which would sort of imply that at some point an initial an original net metering rate was established for a particular design I guess um, are you aware of a separate process that would uh, allow the, the, the initial establishment versus the revision is there a statutory or regulatory process oh oh, oh sure yeah, yeah yes judge Hampson um, the, the utility Duke in this case opens up individual dockets on individual tariffs and, and rates all the time and and they, they do that as a 
I don't want to say as a matter of course, that might be putting it too strongly, but it's, it's a quite common thing. As a matter of fact, uh, in this particular docket is for the residential net energy metering, which was its own individual standalone docket, but then in a separate docket, which is not part of this appeal, but in a, in a separate docket, there was a totally different net energy metering deliberation for non-residential um, solar. So that, that's the argument about um, that's the argument about the elimination of entire class of customers. But I think there are three, as I forecast in my opening, there are three other areas of errors of law that also should be considered by the court. Let, let me ask you a question because I, I know our time's going to be limited and I want to make sure we get to their questions as well. Um, and I'll ask you to probably take a look at this one or your colleagues and maybe tell me during rebuttal. But when it comes to the benefits part of your analysis, um, Looking at the definitions in, or the declaration of policy <coughs> by the General Assembly in 62-2 sub 10 in promoting renewable energy, um, there's, there's four things listed there, A, B, C, and D. I would like to hear at some point, comparing your chart at page 39 of your brief, mm -hmm. which of those fall under this declaration of policy in 62-2 sub 10 and which subpart do you think they fall into if they do it all? Okay. Um, so that's a kind of a limited question that I'd, I'd like to try to get answered. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an excellent question. And um, and uh, the this chart that appeared in our brief was also part of the, the record on appeal in our expert report, by the way. So the lawyers just didn't put that chart together. That's actually part of the is part of the record. Um, and, and if memory serves, 62-2 subsection 10 deals with the need for the utility to consider many factors, including environmental issues, if memory serves, if I have that statute memorized. Right. Inter yeah. That will do all of the following, diversify the resources, provide greater energy security, encourage private investment, provide improved air quality. Yeah. So, I mean, for our position, and we talked about this in our brief, is that there are, a, there, there's, Le a legal basis for why the commission should have con considered these so-called societal benefits of net energy metering, but then there are also policy reasons why they should have considered these so-called societal benefits of, of rooftop solar. And those policy reasons include, but are not limited to, that statutory provision, uh, Judge Murphy, that you just quoted. And uh, I would say that there are a number of provisions of this chart uh, that fall under that policy. Um, the most notable one would be avoided CO2 emissions. Obviously, that's an environmental issue. And then also social environmental would also follow, uh, fall under that policy. Um, and in addition to that provision of the statute, the court will probably recall that there are a number of executive orders entered by Governor Cooper, which also asked the Utilities Commission to consider CO2 emissions when rendering decisions and uh, environmental issues when rendering decisions. What authority does the Utilities Commission have to consider any executive order from the governor? Well, I think, I don't know if it's binding, candidly, I don't know if it's binding upon the Utilities Commission, but it's certainly important. And if we're going to look at... Why? Why is it any more important than my 12-year-old daughter's opinion? Ha! That's, well, it's the governor, first of all. Second of all, because 62-2, um, subsection 10, empowers, I actually know it doesn't empower, it directs the Utilities Commission to consider things like this. Right, the, the statute does. Yes. I agree. I'm talking about just the executive orders. Why do those matter more than any other person's opinion? 
statutorily or under the commission's authority? Yeah, it, it's to, to answer your question directly, I'm not, I don't think it's mandatory and binding to answer your question directly. However, if we're going to look at policy, a combination of the statute that you quoted, Judge Murphy, the executive order from Governor Cooper, and then also, and crucially, the standard of care that would have applied to the Utilities Commission in this docket. And that's something I don't want to get lost in this discussion. There is a standard of care about how you conduct cost-benefit analyses. And that standard of care applies to utilities commissions. And it was the subject of extensive um, expert reports in this docket. Um, NC Warren sponsored an expert named Bill Powers who um, demonstrated that this, this cost-benefit manual, manual that's cited in the briefs is the standard of care and it governs how a cost-benefit analysis should be conducted. Another expert sponsored by Environmental Working Group, um, Carl Rabigo, he was actually one of the authors of this manual. It's a, it's a national manual on how you conduct a cost-benefit analysis of distributed energy, and solar is distributed energy. And under this manual, this national manual, this standard of care, it dictates, and, and this is why I'm getting into this, this, this goes now to Judge Murphy's question, it dictates the types of costs and the types of benefits that should be considered. And we put that manual forward and we said to the commission, multiple appellates said to the commission, you know, commission, this is the standard of care. Follow it. Consider these costs. Consider these benefits. It's required under the manual. It's required under the standard of care. But the manual is not a statutory requirement. Those are not, is, where in the, where in the statute do you point to that says the commission is required to follow those standards set forth in the manual. That, that's a great point, Your Honor, and it's nowhere in the statute. That is, that is certainly conceded. However, however, our position is that it was necessary for the Utilities Commission to at least consider this argument. Our position is that, that the Utilities Commission was presented with multiple expert reports putting an issue Commission, what costs and what benefits need to be considered? And the commission never made findings of fact on that. They never made a conclusion of law on that. And what we would say is remand this matter to the commission for proceedings to figure out what costs and what benefits must be part of the cost-benefit analysis. And I guess what, what we would also say, Your Honors, and that's an excellent question, Judge Arrowwood, what we would also say is that um, without some sort of standard and findings of fact and conclusions of law about what costs and what benefits go into the analysis, the analysis is only as good as the prejudices and interests of the person conducting the analysis. There's, a, there's an old phrase in accounting, I'm dealing with an accounting case right now, there's an old phrase in accounting, garbage in, garbage out, right? If you have bad inputs that go in, you're going to have a bad result that comes out. And I would just say that that concept applies equally here. If you don't make findings of fact concerning which costs and which benefits are part of your analysis, then you can just choose to disavow whatever benefits of rooftop solar that you choose to be inconvenient. And well, isn't that what they did by adopting Duke's study as being more authoritative? 
Um, respectfully, uh, Your Honor, um, no, I, I, I do not agree with that. Uh, the Utilities Commission, and I'm looking for the language right now, um, there, there doesn't seem to be a dispute that the Utilities Commission failed to consider all, and that Duke failed to consider all of the benefits of rooftop solar. Um, there is language I'm just trying to find the pertinent language here. Um, there, there's language from the Utilities Commission's order, which is quoted a lot in the public staff's brief and also Duke's brief, that it considered the majority, if not all, of the benefits of rooftop solar. Now, I think what's important with that is that the Utilities Commission was admitting in its order we can't say, this is, this is like me characterizing the Utilities Commission, we can't say that we considered all the costs and all the benefits because we don't know, but we're, what we are going to say is we considered at least the majority of them. Now, I, I want to emphasize the importance of that, okay? Multiple experts in this case conducted an analysis of the impact that these tariffs will have upon the rooftop solar industry in our state, and we quoted them in our brief. NC Warren's expert, Bill Powers, he, following a, an analysis, he determined that the average savings for a rooftop solar system will be reduced by 29 to 31%. There were multiple rooftop installers, installers, in other words, companies that are in the business of installing solar systems, who analyzed actual customer data and sponsored reports in front of the commission saying that the value of solar systems will be reduced by 20 to 35%. Most importantly, the public staff, who was an appellee in this case, conducted their own analysis of the impact of Duke's proposed net energy metering tariff upon customer bills. And the public staff concluded that, depending on the customer at issue, the average bill for a net energy metering customer, or for a rooftop solar customer, will be increased between 16.5% and 118%. I want to emphasize that. A bill increase of this tariff, a bill is going to increase, depending on the customer, by as much as 118.53%. Now, the, why, do I, why do I mention that and why is that important? Because I want to contrast it with what the Utilities Commission did in this docket, okay? Under the statute, I quoted it before, it's mandated that the Utilities Commission had to conduct an investigation of the costs and benefits of solar. Okay, now that gets to your second argument, which I don't want to cut into your time, but which is what I was hoping you were going to get to, and so that you can explain to me why the statute requires the Commission itself to conduct the investigation I don't see that language anywhere in the statute. It says that there shall be an investigation, but it doesn't say who shall conduct it and why can't the commission rely upon investigations conducted by other people and consider all of those. And, and that would include investigations that you all put forward as well as with your experts. Mm -hmm. Why can't they consider all of those and then make a determination? Why do they have to conduct their own investigation and what resources does the 
Utilities Commission have to conduct such an investigation? Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. And, and, and on this particular argument, Judge Airwood, I think you went to the heart of the heart of the matter. So, that, to, to to respond to your last point first, it's exceptionally common in our nation for Utilities Commissions to lead cost benefit analyses. For example, on record in the record on page uh, 263, there's a discussion of that. So it's very common for that to be done. Um, but to answer the beginning of your question um, directly, um, that, that's, that, that's the issue. Can Duke investigate itself under the statute? I mean, what, what does the word investigation mean? Now, according to the Utilities Commission, there, there's nothing in the plain language of the statute that mandates an investigation must be conducted by the commission. That's what the Utilities Commission said on page one, record page 1249. So the commission's legal conclusion was, Duke, you were permitted to investigate yourself. Now, our position is that can't possibly be what the statute means. And there's, and there's three reasons why we don't believe the statute can possibly stand for the proposition that Duke can investigate itself. There's the plain language of the statute, there's the legislative intent behind the statute, and there's the overall statutory context. So the plain language of the statute, I've quoted it a number of times, I won't go through it again, but it requires an investigation of costs and benefits. Now typically, when I think about an investigation, and I think when any reasonable interpretation, I shouldn't say that, any, any interpretation of the word investigation means you can't investigate yourself, it's gotta be somebody else, a neutral third party, a utilities commission, something, something along those lines. Otherwise the investigation is is the fox guarding the hen house. And why do I use that specific phrase, the fox guarding the hen house? It's because of the second point I raised, legislative intent. I know the court is well aware of the case law that says legislative intent drives the meaning of a statute. And, it, and I see him down to five, five but, I, I, but I, I'm gonna address this issue though, if that's okay. Um, and I'll lose my, some of my rebuttal time, which is fine. Um, the chief author of House Bill 589 was Representative John Suka. He's a Republican out of Cumberland County, or he was, I think he's retired now. And he is on record saying, when he passed this bill, House Bill 589, quote, it's not up to the utility to determine whether net energy metering is good or bad. We know what the answer will be to that. We're not putting the fox in charge of the hen house here. And that's on record page 936. So the plain- But isn't it possible he was wrong? It's possible he was wrong, but you look at the plain, he's the chief author though, but it, you look at the plain um, language of the statute, you look at the legislative intent, which he's speaking to, and then there's a yet another reason, a third reason, which is the overall statutory context. Repeatedly in the Public Utilities Act, when the word investigation is used, it means the commission or another neutral third party is conducting the investigation. We discussed this in our brief. A prominent example is 62-34, which uses the word investigation and requires that the utilities committee, expressly requires that the utilities commission lead the investigation. So our position is that when we use the word investigation, it can't be Duke investigates itself. It can't be the fox guarding the hen house. And um, I see I got Three minutes and 20 seconds, which I will reserve for rebuttal. Thank, Thank you, you very much.
will be with the appellees. And if you could let us know if y'all are splitting your time or, or how you're going about that. Yes. We will be splitting our time. And good morning, Your Honors. <clears throat> and may it please the court, I'm Robert Josie, representing the appellee public staff and on behalf of the using and consuming public. And I will be arguing that the General Assembly did not explicitly require the commission to conduct an investigation prior to its establishment of these net metering rates. And my co-counsel, Mr. Ashley Cooper, representing Duke Energy, will handle the remaining issues. And I would initially like to point out this morning that net metering has been available in the state of North Carolina for almost a quarter century. And there's one thing that the public staff has stated from the beginning and has come uh, among little dispute, which is that net metering customers have received a cross subsidy from non-net metering customers until now. And the commission acknowledged as much in its 2009 order amending net metering policy, stating that Senate Bill 3's policy to further develop renewable energy and enhance net metering outweighed the potential for cross subsidization. However, in 2017, the legislature changed that state policy enacting House Bill 589, which required the commission to establish net metering rates that avoid cross-subsidization and hold non-participating uh, customers harmless. Now this brings us to today, and we are here before the court because the appellants simply disagree with that state policy that requires net metering customers to pay their full fixed cost to serve. As we look at uh, NCGS 62-126.4, the General Assembly mandated three specific actions that each electric utility revise net metering rates, that the commission shall establish the net metering rates, and that an investigation take place prior to the establishment of Who, those rates. Who's required to investigate under the statute? There is no specific entity that is required to investigate net metering in this case. If you look at subsection B of 126.4, it states the rates shall be non-discriminatory and established only after an investigation of the cost and benefits of customer cited generation period. So who assumes that duty of the investigation? It, it can be either the utility or the commission, and in this case, the utility took it upon itself to investigate the, um, the cost and benefits. I want to point out that Mr. Quinn was saying that the utility cannot investigate itself. That is not what is happening here. The utility is investigating, as the plain language of the statute clearly says, the cost and benefits of customer-sided generation. Well, surely the utility can can submit information and an analysis, an investigation that says, here's why we think we meet the cost benefits analysis. But isn't it the, the obligation of the commission then to actually undertake a review, its own analysis, its investigation through its own fact finding process yes. to determine whether this cost benefit analysis is, is accurate? Yes, and, and our, I would first say that the commission stated in its order that the plain language of the statute did not require it to, um, to conduct the investigation. And we must first look at the plain language of the statute and where the statute is intelligible without any additional words, no additional words may be applied. So again, the 
the commission believed that it was not specifically requiring any specific entity to conduct that investigation. However, if you believe that it was, and the commission is required to conduct that investigation, the statutory obligation is still achieved because the docket itself is the investigation. Uh, chapter 62 authorizes the commission to conduct investigations into the public utilities under 62-37 and 62-75 states that in all proceedings instituted by the commission, as we have here, for the purposes of investigating any rate, which we have a net metering rate, the burden of proof shall be upon the public utility whose rate is under investigation to show that that rate is just and reasonable. And here the, the record is clear that the commission conducted that investigation that complies with the statute because Duke filed its revised net metering rates as required by 589 with the supporting studies that would satisfy both subsection 126.4b and 62-75. And the commission opened up a docket, E100 sub 180, entitled In the Matter of Investigation for, of Proposed Net Metering Policy Changes. So what I think I'm hearing from your, from your colleagues, though, is that you know, the, the, this concept of investigation, yes, all well and good, and absolutely utilities should submit its supporting documentation. But here, uh, the plaintiffs submitted their own analyses and documentation and investigation and that the, uh, the duty of the commission was to undertake kind of that weighing and fact-finding process um, you know to ascertain whether in fact in the in the commission's independent um, judgment the, the these rates should be should revise rates should be approved and that that did not in fact happen in this case well I think I, I would, Judge Hampson, I would say that that's exactly what did happen in this case. That, again, Duke filed its revised net metering rates, and then the commission opened up a separate docket, uh, accepted the filing and the supporting studies into the docket, and then uh, uh, issued an order requesting comments from interested parties, such as the public staff who represents all ratepayers, net metering or non-net metering, and the appellants and the AGO and many other uh, interested parties, they were allowed to intervene and enter in their own evidence to either support or combat or just independently state what uh, the net metering rate should be. And then and the commission accepted that evidence into the record, over 1,100 1, pages of evidence, which took just over a year. And then it weighed that evidence before issuing an order and establishing the rates. And I think it's uh, pertinent to point out that this is the standard commission procedure when it is investigating um, a rate or anything else that uh, before it. Um, just when it's ex exercising its investigatory powers under Chapter 62, just like it does in any other investigatory docket, including the utility's response to COVID-19 or the utility's cold weather preparedness or response to winter storm Elliot. And as I've looked through the record, um, it looks like on about page 35 of the commission's order, which is record page 1249, there's a discussion about this investigation, I believe. It says, nor does 
nor does the statute require an investigation to be in any particular format, and it goes through that. How are we to, what is the standard of review that we are to apply to those, although they're not designated as findings, they appear to be findings, uh, what standard of review are we required to apply to that? Well, if you're, if you're looking at specifically whether or not it was, the commission was required to conduct the investigation, that would be a de novo review. Um, but I would say that um, this court should give deference to the commission's um, interpretation of the statute, um, which is what the Supreme Court has stated in state XREL Utilities Commission v. Public Staff, um, that the agency's interpretation may be helpful and entitled to great consideration when the court is asked to construe the statute. Um, furthermore, if you're talking about what cost or benefits should be included in the, in the investigation, in the study, that would be under a commission discretion review. So it would have to be an abuse of discretion as to if they didn't, or how they considered it, what, what weight they gave to, to each bit of the evidence, is that? It, Exactly, Judge Arrowwood, and my co-counsel, Mr. Cooper, can and could possibly answer that in more detail. But I would like to point out. Sorry, I didn't mean to get into his. <laughs> no, but it, it gives me an opportunity to point out that the public staff stated in its initial comments that the rate design study that included the marginal and embedded cost studies captured the majority of the known and verifiable benefits, and the commission agreed that the studies were sufficient. And. Furthermore, the commission's order stated that the determination of which benefits should or should not be included or that are known and verifiable will be uh, repeatedly reviewed in its biennial avoided cost proceeding. And let me ask a tangential question with, with this is, assuming we agree with you that what the commission stepped through here was actually, could be interpreted as an investigation um, of everything before it, what impact, or doesn't have a great impact that they say we're not doing an investigation because we don't have to? So if they're saying we don't have to do an investigation, why should we look at this as an investigation? Even though it walks through a bunch of stuff, if they don't feel like they're doing an investigation, how's that an investigation? I don't think that the commission's order, respectfully, Judge Murphy, the commission's order actually said it wasn't doing an investigation, just that it wasn't required to do an investigation. And um, I think it's just, it's kind of a, a plain sight argument. The, the, the docket itself is named investigation into net metering policy changes. I think it's, it's just obvious that that is what the commission is doing. It is, it is receiving all of the evidence into the record and evaluating and doing its investigation prior to establishing that metering rate, which is exactly what the statute says. And if there are no further questions for me, I will turn it over to my co-counsel, Mr. Cooper. Morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Ashley Cooper. I'm appearing on behalf of Duke Energy Carolinas and Duke Energy Progress. I'm happy to address any issues in the order Your Honors prefer, but I plan to address the remaining issues in the following order. The investigation performed properly considered benefits of rooftop solar. 
The tariff rate approved by the tariff rate approved ensures net metering customers pay their full fixed cost of service. The commission appropriately considered the MOU and stipulation that was filed in the record as part of its investigation docket. Turning to the cost benefit analysis, appellants urged the commission urged that the commission's order is arbitrary and capricious because the investigation did not satisfy the statute's requirement for investigation of cost and benefits of customer-sided generation. The arbitrary and capricious standard is difficult to meet. It requires a finding that the commission's decision was in bad faith, whimsical, lacked reasoning, and is unsupported by substantial evidence. Appellants can't meet that standard. And I'll discuss the requirements. The Commission's findings that the investigation satisfied the statute's requirements is supported by the plain text and purpose of the statute, substantial evidence in the record, and aligns with the standard of care for North Carolina for the cost and benefit investigation. Moreover, in doing this, the Commission was conducting an investigation. This was a rate-making proceeding. And under North Carolina law, the Commission is entitled to great deference given that its members possess an expertise in utility rate making that makes them uniquely qualified to decide the issues that are presumed for their consideration. In compliance with the legislative mandate and the Distributed Resources Access Act, which is commonly referred to as HB 589, the companies conducted a marginal and embedded cost study under the comprehensive rate review. They did this with more than 20 different organizations that are some of the leading organizations that represent environmental interest, renewable energy, and rooftop solar specifically, along with public staff. The study conducted used North Carolina commissioned approved standards and regulation and methodologies which are endorsed by the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. This is something the Commission examines all the time, and this is something that's common to the Commission in rate proceedings. A cost of service study starts with examining the cost of serving electric energy to customers. Benefits exist where it reduces or eliminates the cost of service, as these are the costs that, that impact utility rates. But the appellants want you to take drastic action. And they're asking for the commission to abandon its years of precedence and adopt a new methodology that's only been adopted and utilized in a handful of states, which does not include North Carolina. Appellants want benefits such as low-income non-energy benefits or energy independence to be included in terms of setting the rates. These benefits are not quantifiable in monetary terms. Why aren't they quantifiable? If, I mean, just about everything can be quantified. You can, we value the, we have juries decide the value of a human life all the time. Um, isn't this just a resource allocation issue to figure out what the value of these benefits are? and to make them more concrete or to limit it to figure that out? No, Your Honor, I think it's more than that. I think it's compliance with the statute itself because the statute says it's full fixed cost of service. 
And so the benefits must relate to a cost of providing electric service. Let me give you an example that looks at it from the other side. We know that there will be a cost of disposing rooftop solar panels, but the utility doesn't incur a cost today. That's not part of a cost the utility pays to provide electric service to its customers. So if the utility were to say, well, we know that at some point there'll be a cost to dispose of solar panels, and to your honor's point, we can extrapolate or come up with a hypothetical cost of this, but it still doesn't relate to the cost of providing electric service, then it does not relate to what the, what the legislature asked us to focus on, which is the full fixed cost of service. So had the company included such costs like this that doesn't relate to the fixed cost of service, it would have been impermissible. And the same goes for societal benefits that do not relate to costs associated with providing the full fixed cost of service. Right, let me ask maybe a more basic question, just so I've got a better background here. What benefits were considered? Sure. Uh, benefits that affect the fixed cost of service, such as energy capacity, like the steel in the ground for the generating plants, transmission costs, distribution costs, those benefits that they provide, rooftop solar customers provide to offset some of those costs or delay future construction, those costs were considered. So what was considered is if you have this solar installation, Duke or the utility, general utility is not going to have to perhaps build an additional plant right. to furnish the, furnish the energy that this is offsetting. That's correct. Uh, and it's your contention that fixed cost does not include any of the benefits that the appellants say was not considered uh, that, that none of those things are, are fixed cost. That's correct. Yeah. So would you concede that the commission then did not um, consider in a cost benefit analysis any of the policy declarations in 62-210? No, Your Honor. I'd say that the commission fully considered it. I mean, there was a full record, and all parties were allowed Where to Where do they consider in the order? Well, in the order, they said at the, at the end, I believe Mr. Josie cited that, they said, we require the company, we, we believe that benefits could change in the future, and there could be additional benefits in the, in the future, and we require the company to update rates in the future, and that's in the order, Your Honor. So hand in hand with this, how is there ever going to be that data if the power companies are the ones doing the investigations for the utility commission? Well, in, in this, it was, this was really a unique case because you had the power companies do it with 20 organizations that ranged from North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association to Southern Alliance for Clean Energy to Vote Solar to um, uh, Sunrun. I mean, these are some of the leaders in environmental champions and rooftop solar and renewable energy. They all had a chance to be a part of this cost-benefit analysis. There was a historic, I mean, really unprecedented sharing of information, sharing of calculations, and these companies all had a, ch or these organizations had a chance to weigh in. And these organizations all, eventually, they were 
these were, they were serious about meeting the requirements of 589, and they were champions for rooftop solar. But they came together and there was compromise, and together they put forward, they reached a memorandum of understanding that was reflected in the tariff designs that was submitted to the commission that properly allocated and weighed the cost and benefits and redesigned rates to ensure that rooftop customers paid their full fixed cost of service. So the MOU that was entered into also took into account and was part of it was uh, energy install installers and and organizations that purport to represent consumers as well. Is that that's correct? correct? That's correct, Your Honor. And together, and this goes towards the second uh, point here, is what they had to do was the commission had to establish net metering rates that ensured that the net metering customers pays its full fixed cost of service. And so when we talk about the tariff that was established, the commission found that the statute means that under whatever tariff designs net metering is being offered under the act, the rate set must be sufficient to ensure that the customer pays its full fixed cost of service. In other words, the language, all tariff designs, means that each tariff approved by the commission under the act for review um, for revised net metering rates must ensure that the tariffs customers pay their full fixed cost of service. The commission applied the language literally as written. The appellants really just want one thing, right? They want a flat rate and they want that put back into service. They're not asking for all tariff designs. They want one tariff design. They want the tariff design that was previously in effect that led to customers not paying their full fixed cost of service and led to the General Assembly taking action in this case. They, to, to get to their appellant seek to rewrite the language, which we know they can't. The language says the commission shall establish net meeting rates under all tariff designs that ensure the net metering retail customer pays its full fixed cost of service. For appellant's argument to make sense, it would have to say the commission shall establish net metering rates under all tariff designs and ensure that net metering rates pays its full fixed cost of service. It's was, well, there, was there ever kind of a, a ruling on the, the admissibility of, of the plaintiff's evidence, the expert testimony? Um, you know, was, I mean, the, whether or not it was accepted by the commission, whether they were in fact qualified as experts, whether this was relevant to the investigation, to the analysis, to the fact finding, or was it just sort of kind of ignored in light of the other evidence? And, and specifically when you say they, it, it, what, what? I mean, the, the, the plaintiff's evidence, they, they, you know, the argument is we presented expert testimony, expert reports to the commission. And as I hear their argument is that that was simply not considered by the commission. Not, you know, not, not wasn't even given sort of the balancing, you know, we give more weight to, to, the, to Duke's evidence than we do to the plaintiff's evidence. That it was just kind of, um, well, ignored, small i, ignored, but that it wasn't really taken into account. And so my question is, was there, was, was there, your argument seems to be it was completely irrelevant to the analysis, that it had, had no, no basis in the cost-benefit analysis as required by statute. I mean, was there an objection? Was there any process in which the, the experts were challenged either on their qualifications or in the, the, the relevancy, the admissibility, 
you know, pushing more away from the yeah. weight, more to, more to the, from the legal standpoint, was, was this evidence properly before the commission? And, I mean, was that ever considered below, or was it there for the commission to have to consider? Yes, Your Honor. And, and just to avoid confusion, I appreciate you clarifying. I was addressing the issue of were they required to adopt more tariff designs than what was adopted. I understand Your Honor's going back to the cost benefit. I'm probably shifting gears. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. Happy to do that. Um, I think that there, there was. What, what really the appellants were asking the commission to do was to, through abandon its years of precedent where they the commission's been clear for years that it's known and quantifiable benefits they've said that in numerous rate cating rate case proceedings that was reflected in public staff's briefs as well and said we you know it's long-standing this the appellants wanted the commission to adopt a new methodology completely and put forth experts that said adopt this new methodology that's being recognized in a handful of states and the commission was with, well within its discretion. It was reasonable not to shift and, ad, and adopt a new methodology that had been just used in a handful of states. They, didn't, they weren't required to abandon the years of precedent in North Carolina, particularly on something that would have been a methodology that appears kind of really contradictory to the legislative intent, which says, or the plain language of the legislation, which says we need to uh, establish tariff designs that ensures customers pay their full fixed cost of service. So the commission acted well within its discretion in making that determination. How does the elimination of um, flat costs, flat um, tariff designation ensure full fixed costs? So to do that, it, 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 that's the point. It's the full fixed cost. So the more of a sophisticated rate design you have, the more you have an ability to zero in on costs that are appropriately attributable to these customers. So the, the way this works is that if I'm a rooftop solar customer, I, because under normal rates, the commission, I mean, the utility charges volumetric rates through your generation that you purchase. That volumetric rate in, includes costs related to transmission, distribution, even cybersecurity and protection of its systems that all of us have to pay for, right? So when I avoid my generation charges, I avoid those charges which are properly, that I still cause the utility to include when it's in a flat or volumetric rate. The more sophisticated the rate design, like the current one where they put customers on time of use rates, where they had a grid access fee, where they had non-bypassable charges, where they had, um, uh, uh, a monthly minimum bill, that's where, in, with this collection of interest, meaning the NCSEA, SACE, Sunrun, Vote Solar, they could look and say, are these different rates for these specific components more tailored to exactly what these customers, the services they use from the utility and the benefits that they provide back to the utility? Tell me, and, and might give you a little bit more time if there's other questions, but Tell me why the on-demand cost structure goes towards that angle. I think that's something I'm missing is the was it peak rate pricing, peak and on-peak pricing. How does that target making sure somebody pays their full fixed cost? I'm missing that. Well, because if I, this morning may be a, a really good example because it's very cold this morning. So at 5 a.m., 6 
a.m., that's when a utility in the winter is going to peak, and it's going to have some of its highest demands on its system. It's right before the sun comes up. It's when we all get up. We're getting ready to go to work. The sun's not shining yet. A rooftop solar customer is not receiving the benefit of, of self-generation at that time. So even if the utility has to plan to serve rooftop solar customers for one hour out of the year, it still must incur all of those expenses to ensure it has adequate transmission, ensure it has adequate distribution, to ensure it has adequate generation. So that's why these time of use rates, uh, critical peak pricing, it, this is all, what, what happened was you moved away from saying like a, you know, chopping wood with an ax to really taking a, a, uh, a scalpel and making much more finer tuned exactly what do these customers use, when do they use it, when are they taking power from the system, how much is built out because we still have to serve them, even if it's less time, we still have to be able to serve them. And, and then when are they helping us defray certain costs? So this was a much more detailed tariff that, that really more ca accurately captured the benefits they provide, the costs that they incur, and that's candidly how you had groups like Boat Solar, Sunrun, Southern Alliance for Clean Energy all come on board and say we can move forward together. This is a reasonable way to proceed that gives effect to the legislature. I, uh, I guess my problem is, and this is probably just, a, just with me, so feel free to point me to anywhere in the record that might educate me on, on this better. Aren't those, why isn't that a variable cost with the on peak, off peak, when you have the changes in the system and you're accounting for that different usage, wouldn't that be a variable cost instead of a fixed cost? No, because what, to the extent, Your Honor, that you have transmission that has to be built, those are wire steel that's put in the ground, that's distribution lines that are wire steel put in the ground. Also, it, for a generating plant, you, you know, if you have to build a new generating plant, the, the steel, the, the plant itself is a fixed cost. The fuel that supplies that would be a variable cost that would go up and down. So. You still have these fixed costs that have to be ready on a morning like this morning when, you know, I suspect that the utility, if you look, had a pretty high load morning and they had to have all these assets available and ready to meet the loads on their system this morning. So that's why they'd be. I see that I'm out of time. I under, I'm happy to take any more questions the commission may. Take some more time. I do have one other question and going back to what Judge Hampson was asking about, about whether the commission considered or was there an evidentiary, I believe the evidentiary hearing, and I'm wondering how the commission's findings on record page 1250, and uh, which is page 36 of the order itself, if that answers the question about whether they considered or why they didn't consider what, it's clear that they didn't consider based upon what it says. It says that the record and proceeding relative to including the benefits for avoided T&D costs and is inconclusive. The commission is not required to do that. So they did not consider that, and they said up front they did not. And is it the Apple's position that the reason that's proper is because that's not fixed cost? Right. Well, if I understand Your Honor correctly, I believe it would be those are not fixed costs. Sorry, I'm not as articulate in this area of the law as, as I might be in others. Well, if there's nothing further, I certainly. 
certainly appreciate the court's time. I thank you, Your Honors, for your time and respectfully request that you certify the commission's order below. Thank you. Thank you. We've got about three minutes. Yes, sir. Thank you. May it please the court. Um, I noticed that um, my friend, uh, Mr. Josie, with the public staff, he said several times that the commission considered evidence, evidence, evidence. There was no evidence considered in this docket. We asked, the appellants asked for an evidentiary hearing. We filed a formal motion asking for an evidentiary hearing. We were denied that opportunity. But when you put, but you were able to put in your studies and you were able to put in all of those things you were that is evidence, is it not? Well, I, I, I don't think it's evidence because when I think of evidence, I think of live testimony, getting the witness in front of me and examining them. I understand Your Honor's point, but there was no evidentiary hearing. There was no oral argument opportunity allowed. The commission was presented with a seven-page study by Duke Energy conducted in-house, not by Duke's outside consultants, not by an engineer that puts a stamp on the study, a seven-page study conducted by Duke's W-2 employees. That's what the commission approved in this case. Well, how, and we'll give you some more time to get to your points if you can, but I'm curious as to how you contend, the appellants contend, that the evidence, what I would say is evidence that you put up uh, related to fixed cost as opposed to intangible benefits or, as the commission said, um, inconclusive um, how, how it's fixed costs? Excellent question. And I, I think that assumes an issue that, that should not be assumed, that namely that we're only looking at, at fixed costs. Um, well, this manual refers to fixed costs though, doesn't it? Uh, well, so the, the, ma the national manual at issue in this case that we put forward as the gold standard, as the stand not just the gold standard, the standard of care for how you conduct a cost-benefit analysis, that sets out the costs and the benefits of rooftop solar that should be considered. Now, what my, my friends on the other side, the question they could never answer in response to your honors was where in the record did the Utilities Commission look at that manual, weigh it, and go, we're going with it or we're not going with it? These costs are in, these costs are out. These benefits are in, these benefits are out. I'll make it as easy as I possibly can. The Commission's, the commission's weighing of evidence appears on record pages 1246 to 1255. Now, there's a mention of the manual earlier in the order when the commission is reciting what, what the various parties in, contended in the docket. But when the commission is weighing the evidence and making findings of fact and rendering conclusions of law, the commission never said, NC Warren, Environmental Working Group, 350 Triangle, NCCSC, these benefits are in, these benefits are out, and here's why. And if the commission doesn't, even deliberate over that topic. How, how, how can this court possibly decide that all material benefits were considered? I, I would respectfully request that the, that the court cannot. And I, and I now see I got a red light and that my time is out. You're okay. You keep answering questions that the panel may have. I, I appreciate that, Your Honor. Another, another important thing I, I want to mention is about the standard of care. Um, the case law, the commission in this case does not get 
the deference that was, was suggested. The case law was clear. This is State XREL Utilities Commission v. Cooper. It was cited in our brief that if the commission fails to make a necessary finding of fact, it's an error of law. And the last thing, and this is the last thing I will mention, I know I'm pressing my luck with this red light here, so this is the last thing I will say, is my colleague for Duke mentioned the memorandum of understanding and how all of these parties came together and reached a settlement agreement. I want to make something very clear about that memorandum of understanding. Number one, it was non-unanimous. It was before only a select few parties. Number two, there were two parts of that memorandum of understanding. There was the good part and the bad part. The bad part is the tariffs, what, calls the, what causes solar electricity to get more expensive. That's the bad part. The good part was the incentives, the good stuff that these settling parties agreed to to make solar more attractive so that they would consummate the agreement. Well, guess what? The Utilities Commission in this docket approved the bad stuff, the tariffs, and in a separate docket rejected the incentives. So I would respectfully suggest that that memorandum of understanding should be given no weight. And if the court doesn't have any other questions, I will, I will sit down. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Thank you both for your, or all three of you for your arguments. We really appreciate it. Thank you for everyone for being here. And um, that'll be the end of our session this morning. Thank you. All rise.